Church, would you remain standing as we read the first chapter of Luke, verses 30 through 37. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. So we spent our time together last week studying an encounter between Jesus and a rich young man. This man had everything this world has to offer. Not only material wealth and possessions, but he was a ruler, a leader of some sort in the local synagogue. He was a moral and religious man. It's a man that had not only known the law of God, but had dedicated his life to the keeping of it. Yet, despite his wealth, despite his position, despite his understanding of God's law, this man knew that he lacked something. Specifically, this man longed for eternal life. This isn't just a quantity of life, it is a quality. A certain quality of life which only God can offer. A life of blessedness in his presence. A life which can begin today and end, of course, in eternity. Continuing on, this unending, never-ending eternal life. In the presence of God, fellowship, friendship with him. This man knew that he needed it. He knew that Jesus Christ alone had it. He had heard about Jesus. He had heard of his teaching. He had heard of his miracles. And so he comes to him. The Lord and his disciples, they're there in the region of Perea, just on the east side of the Jordan River. And so the man comes. He doesn't just walk. He runs. He comes running up to Jesus, and he kneels there on the ground, and he cries out, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I need you to see this picture in your mind again this morning. This decent, moral, rich, religious young man kneeling in the dirt, completely humbled, coming to the right person with the right posture, with the right question. This would seem to be an absolute softball of an evangelistic encounter. Just a layup right before Jesus Christ. And yet in the end, the man would walk away lost, and sad because you see Jesus knew this man's heart he knew that this man had an idol he knew that he loved his possessions he also knew that because of this man's good work good works because of his morality because of the way he strove to keep the law that this idolatry had probably gone unseen this good decent religious moral young man he probably had no idea just how deep his love for money went he had no idea just how deep the hooks of his possessions had captured him. It wasn't that this man woke up and twisted his evil mustache and said, today I shall worship my money. If you would have asked this man, he would have told you he had no other God in the whole universe except the God that is called Yahweh. And yet on that day, he stood before Jesus Christ asking for eternal life, having no idea that his idolatry was just buried beneath a mountain of good works. And so Jesus is an act of love. 
in order to expose this to this young man. He was going to lay his heart bare. He was going to give this man an opportunity to see that idolatry which had taken root in his heart. He was going to reveal what was buried deep down behind this moral religious activity. He was going to expose it, not for Jesus' sake. Jesus already knew. Jesus knows the hearts of all men. It was for this man that he might see. Ultimately, this wasn't about the money. This wasn't even about feeding the poor. This was about bringing to the surface that which had gone unnoticed up till this point. The man was going to be forced to answer a question. This is the question. The question is before every single one of us this morning. Do you cherish Jesus Christ more than anything else in all the universe? Because if you do, if you have come to see the glory of God in the face of his son, Jesus Christ, if you long to worship and obey this king, if it is your deepest desire to, to live under the loving reign of Jesus Christ as the king of the universe, then when he calls, there is nothing that you will refuse to give up. And we know this in every other area of life. Just practically, it's obvious before us. A young boy, he discovers a love for baseball cards, and there is nothing that he will not sell. There is no job that he will not perform to get his hands on more. The same little boy, he matures a bit. He finds himself a little girlfriend, and immediately everything changes. He can't think about school any longer. His weekends are already accounted for. His buddies call him a sellout. Everything else around him starts to become very dim and faded compared to his desire to be with this little girl. Perhaps that couple grows up and they become married. All other relationships change. Many relationships are severed completely. But even those that remain, they're going to be altered. They're going to be subservient. They're going to be secondary to this, his primary relationship. We know what it looks like. Practically, you know what it looks like when someone finds that thing, that one that they cherish more than anything else in all the world. It's all they can think about. It's all they can talk about. All of their resources, all of their life, all of their times, all of their effort, all the very best of who they are is dedicated to this, the one. I have finally found the one. I delight in them more than anything else, and nothing is going to drag me away. And so because of that love, driven by that love and that desire for that one, they will come to resent, they will come to hate anything which would come between them, anything which is going to keep them from honoring, from loving, from cherishing, from spending time with this one that they love, they're going to flee from it quicker than anyone would know what happened. That's the picture, and yet somehow, when people come to Jesus Christ, the one that we know, compared to all the rest of our relationships, that our love for Jesus Christ must make all the rest look like hate. And yet somehow, when we come to him and we claim our undying affections for him, we claim that we love him more than anything else in all the universe, and then we treat him like an extra, like an add-on like an accessory of some sort to our life. As we discovered last week, Jesus says no. Jesus says no. You must repent. You must turn away and abandon anything and everything which would capture a place in your heart which should be reserved for me. You must turn from anything and everything which would hamper your ability to honor and worship and obey me. I'm not just talking about evil things. I'm talking about good things. Talking about your health, your wealth, your life, even your good works. You must come to despise and flee from your good works if by those good works you would seek to earn the kingdom of heaven. If by those good works you would bury idolatry and love for another God. You must repent of everything, turn and follow me. I lead, you follow, not the other way around. This was the call that Jesus made made to this man. It's the call he makes to every single one of us. But you must be warned. Even coming to Jesus humbly... Even coming to Jesus quite sincerely and desiring this eternal life which only he can offer, 
Even desiring to set your idols aside, you must understand that those idols won't die easy. They will continue to claw at your heart. Like a little puppy dog that's been left out in the rain, it is going to scratch, it is going to whine, it is going to plead. This is the work of Satan. Doesn't matter how cute, doesn't matter how loving that little puppy dog looks, that is the work of the enemy. He is desperate to drag you away, to entice you, to deceive you, to lie to you, to tempt you, to turn your back on this one that is greater than every other one. So we must learn to resist. We must learn to recognize this for what it is and learn to hate it. Learn to kick it in the teeth and learn to hate it. Not a puppy dog, but your sins. Maybe a puppy dog if it's... This is the picture of the heart which is truly repentant, truly trusted in Jesus Christ and has thrown itself upon him as Lord of the universe. We don't rest in the power of our own repentance. We don't rest in the size of our own faith. We don't rest in anything that we bring to the table. We throw ourselves wholly and completely at the feet of Jesus Christ. What should have happened at this moment? What should have happened? Had this man truly understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, had he truly hated his sin, had he truly seen his desperate estate, had he truly known that there was no way to earn eternal life apart from the one that they, he sat for on that day, when Jesus Christ called, he would have said, I can't. I can't. Jesus, I want you more than anything else in all the universe, but I've been with this wealth for so long. I worked so hard to build it. It's got its claws in me so deep. I want it. I want to follow you, but it is so strong, and I am so weak, so help me. Jesus, save me from myself. I throw myself upon you completely and wholly. I can't even want the things that you tell me to want. I lay here in the dirt, in dust and ashes, mourning over even my good works. Save me, Jesus. Save me from myself. It's what we should have seen in this man's life, but instead, he walked away sad. Having no idea exactly where he was headed. But dear friends, it was not good. Had this man truly understood, wild horses could not have drug him away from the feet of Jesus Christ on that day. I don't know whether it's because he decided Jesus was crazy, or perhaps he believed that he could find his own way to eternal life. But either way, the man turned around and walked away. He was still rich. He was still powerful. He was still religious. All of his buddies would continue to call him favored by God. But in the end, he was headed straight for hell. I pray that you walked out of here yesterday, or excuse me, last week with that message firmly planted in your heart. You will come to Jesus Christ on his terms or you will not have him at all. You will come to Jesus Christ and he will be your everything or you will not have him at all. It doesn't matter your humility. It doesn't matter how much you hate your sin. It does not matter how earnestly you seek for the kingdom of God. You will come to Jesus Christ and you will abandon all other. Do this and you will have eternal life. Do not, you'll walk away a whole lot more than sad. So with that, I ask you to stand to your feet, please. We continue in this text. We read Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. This is the word of God. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. 
Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself and your unending holiness? In it, would you show me myself and my wretched depravity? But God, would you there also show me your son, Jesus Christ? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So the man walks away. Jesus doesn't pester him. He doesn't beg with him. He doesn't barter and change the rules. Jesus, he has set the conditions, and the man has made his choice. So he allows him to walk away, and then he turns to his disciples. And this is the pattern, isn't it? All throughout Mark's gospel, we have seen this insider-outsider pattern. As Jesus sets the standard, the radical unattainable standard of the kingdom of heaven. And those that were just following along lightly, those that were perhaps of shallow soil, thorny soil, rocky soil, those that never truly intended to endure to the end, they will fall away. And then Jesus will turn and he will devote his attention to those that remain, that small faithful remnant that by the grace of God and working the Holy Spirit continue to follow after him. He will bring them to a greater understanding how difficult it will be for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now this isn't a question. For those of you that weren't reading along in your Bible, there's no question mark here. He isn't asking, how difficult will it be for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God? This is an absolute statement of fact. Matthew records it like this. Truly I say to you, only with difficult will a, difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a struggle. This is a strain. This is a fight. It will be greatly difficult, increasingly difficult for someone with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus never backed away from the difficult subjects. He never backpedaled. He never shied away. He never gave any ground. In fact, he would double down in instances like this. It seems to me that what he does here is he removes the reference to wealth altogether. It seems to me what Jesus is saying is how difficult it would be with, for, for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. His disciples are astonished, and he says, whoa, 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 time out. How difficult it would be for everyone to enter the kingdom of God. You see, dear friends, poverty doesn't make it any easier. As we discussed last week, wealth is not the problem. It is the love of money. It is idolatry. It is allowing anything to take root in our heart which would separate us from Jesus Christ. That is the snare. That is the problem. Now, are there some unique challenges that come with wealth that would perhaps hinder a man's ability to come to to see his need of salvation? Absolutely. Again, as we discussed last week, it's very easy for people with wealth to fall for the lie that perhaps they are favored by God, that perhaps that their material wealth and the things that God has given them are, are some reward for their spiritual piety. In addition to that, there's just a self-sufficiency, a self-reliance that can come with wealth. This wealth can serve to trap and to ensnare people, to lie to them, to believe that they don't have any desperation, they don't have any deep need of a Savior. And so, yes, absolutely, wealthy people do have a unique set of challenges a unique set of circumstances which does make it quite difficult for them to come to Jesus Christ in saving faith. But do not think for one second that poverty makes this any easier. 
Those that are poor have their own set of unique circumstances and challenges and trials. Oftentimes, it's the love for that which the wealthy people have. It's the love for that which they see in others that becomes an idol in their heart. And so we ought not think of any station in life as any easier to enter in the kingdom of God than others. Not married, not single, not rich, not poor, not healthy, not, nothing, nothing. You see, that's what we do. We consistently look and say, well, Jesus Christ, when? When? God, if you would bring me to this, if you would give me this, if you would change this circumstance, then I could really follow after you. Then I could be a true disciple. And he's saying, no, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. He goes on. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He makes clear how difficult this thing really is. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. How hard is that, you may ask? It can't be done. Now, before you come up to me, don't do that. I know there's some of you right now saying, I can't wait to talk to him after service. I, I know all the theories, okay? I know that if you change one letter in the Greek word for camel, you get the Aramaic word for a thick cable. So I know that there are men that teach that what Jesus is saying here. He's not actually talking about a dromedary. Bonus points for me saying dromedary. He's not talking about an actual camel here. Did you know what a dromedary was? Okay. He's not, he's not talking about an actual camel. He's just talking about a thick rope. Okay, firstly, if that mistake was made, it was made by scribes that were translating or that were, that were writing out all three of the synoptic gospels. They all three made the exact same error. Number two, it isn't any easier to put a thick rope through the eye of a needle than it is a camel. This doesn't change what Jesus is saying here. Secondly, this is the favorite one, right? No, 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 pastor, don't you know? There was this gate in Jerusalem. There was this one small gate in Jerusalem, and it was called the eye of the needle. And it was through that gate that men would seek to pass. And if they wanted to pass, it was incredibly difficult because it was a small gate. And so what had, had to happen was they had to get rid of all their stuff. They had to unload all their stuff on the back of the camel. Then the camel had to get down on his knees and then shimmy through this little gate. And then what Jesus is saying here is that's the kind of difficulty. That's the way that you must approach the kingdom of God. You've got to get rid of all your stuff, and you've got to come to God humbly on your knees. And that sounds really good, right? That makes an awesome Sunday school story. That makes you sound really smart. That makes you sound really pious. That's a really churchy thing. But number one, there's no such gate. Number two, I've been to Jerusalem. There's lots of gates. If there's one teeny tiny gate, why would you try to cram your camel through that tiny gate? There's ginormous gates all over the place, just, just hundreds of feet away. This isn't what Jesus is saying. Perhaps more importantly than that, to say this, to say that there's some certain posture, there's some certain way that you can come to Jesus Christ, that you can come to the kingdom, and then you can work your own way in. That's completely contrary to all the rest of what Jesus is saying. No, what he's saying is this is a, it's a common saying. This is an axiom of the day. The Arabic people would say that it is more difficult for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle than for such and such to happen. See, the camel was just the largest animal in Palestine, and the needle was the hole that they're most familiar with that's the smallest. He's just speaking in extremes here. He's saying, imagine the biggest thing you know of. Now imagine the smallest opening you know of. Now you'd be easier to make that work than to enter the kingdom of God. That's the picture that he's painting here. That's the point. It's not just difficult. It doesn't just require a certain posture. It doesn't just require unloading some stuff. It can't be done. And the response of the disciples, and Jesus replied to this, it makes it clear. Verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, then who can be saved? You see, we come to these radical teachings of Jesus, and there are so many. We come to these radical teachings of Jesus, and then we try to soften them. We try to back down a little bit. We try to, we try to put them on a level that 
the natural man can understand. And we, we don't want to turn it into just some high-level religiosity. We want to turn it into something, yes, it's difficult, difficult to understand, difficult to ad- attain to, but not something that can't be done. But dear friends, we can't, we can't just ignore the fact that time after time after time, Jesus says these things, and then his followers, his disciples, those that have been with him for years, those that have seen him work miracles, those that have heard all of his toughest teaching, those that have slept with him out under the stars, they're standing there with their mouths wide open going, no one says things like this. No one calls us to such radical obedience. Jesus, what you have really just said is true? Then who can be saved? Now, I do want you to see this. I want you to remember that the man came to Jesus, and he was asking about eternal life. Jesus responded, and he talked about the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God. And then his disciples stood astonished, and they said, well, who then can be saved? All three of these things point to the same reality. Eternal life, entering the kingdom of God, salvation. There are different ways of talking about this very similar thing. The question before each man is, do you desire to live in this blessed presence of God for eternity? Is it your desire to submit to him and his kingly rule for all time? Do you desire to be saved from his wrath that will come when he returns? This is it. He's saying, is this your desire? That's the question. When you ask a man, would you be saved? Do you desire to enter the kingdom of God? Would you wish to inherit eternal life? And these men understood very clearly, no matter what name you put on it, no matter what term you use, they understood very clearly that this was about a whole lot more than reciting a prayer, running down an aisle, or signing a card. They ask, if this rich man can't be saved, then who can? And again, we've got to change our mindset with regards to wealth and religion. You see, today we've sat under the teachings of Jesus Christ. We live in a world where wealth is viewed very differently than it was even 10 years ago. We know about the trappings, the, the, uh, all the trappings of wealth, and we don't automatically assume that wealthy people are the good guys. In fact, I would challenge you, you go home and watch almost any movie, and the rich and powerful guy, you almost always assume that he's the villain, and that wasn't the case back then, though. We, we know that wealth does not impute some sense of holiness or righteousness or, or favor with God. We don't believe that wealth gains somebody greater access to the king and to his kingdom, but back then, in the first century Jewish, uh, Jewish culture, They understood. They believed that wealth was an evidence of God's divine favor on someone's life. But more than this, they believed that with that wealth, you could purchase even more favor from God. They believed that you could take this and by the giving of alms that a man could become righteous, almost perfect, in fact, before God. And, of course, in order to offer sacrifices there to Jesus and to God in the temple, it it required money. It required wealth. And offerings that were brought into the temple they were seen as a way to move yourself closer to god and so this just becomes a never-ending cycle a man finds favor with god and therefore god blesses him with material wealth with that material wealth the man is able to buy make offerings and thereby buy more favor with god with that favor from god comes more wealth with that wealth comes more ability to buy favor it's a snowball that never ends on and on and on it goes you talk about the rich getting richer the rich become more holy more righteous, more blessed by God in the eyes of first century Jewish men and women. And the converse of that, the flip side of that coin, is really popping, isn't it? The flip side of that is that poor people have no access to God whatsoever. Clearly the poor people are accursed. Clearly they're being punished by God and that's why they don't have any wealth at all. And then because they don't have any wealth, they can't buy any favor back with God. And you see this trap that they're on, that they're in. You see why whenever we would come to stories about the rich man and Lazarus, they would assume that the man named Lazarus was the one that was in hell. And they would assume that the rich man was the one at Abraham's bosom. 
They simply could not see any path to the poor man for holiness, for righteousness, for approval with God. It was the rich man that was seen as favored. And so this is what's so shocking about these men when he says, it can't be done. You'd be easier cramming a camel through the eye of a needle than having a rich, entering a rich man into heaven. This is like coming to you and telling you that Billy Graham isn't going to heaven. A man that is not only righteous, but that has access to more righteousness. In the Southern Baptist world, that would be me coming in here and saying, guys, it would be more difficult for Billy Graham to go to heaven than for a camel to get through the avenue. And you say, well, then who? Then who? If they're not letting Billy Graham in, why are they going to let me in? What can be done? Who can be saved if this is the truth? So Jesus looks at them and he says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. It's as if Jesus says, in case you didn't understand the thing I said about the needle and the camel, in case some preacher is going to try to tell you it's something else, let me just speak very clearly. No idioms, no, axi- no, no um, axioms, no, no parables, straightforward truth. Let me tell you, it cannot be done. It is impossible with man. And you have no idea how much I wrestled this week. This could have very quickly turned into ten sermons. This is the truth that I have been so desperately trying to preach to you for two and a half years, this is the truth that so many of you have wrestled with so deeply over the last two and a half years, the reality that man simply cannot save himself. It is impossible. And it's so very foundational to our understanding of every single part of who God is, who we are, and how this thing called salvation works. So much of what Scripture has to say will be completely lost if we don't get right at this point. With man, salvation is impossible. But you've got to determine. This is not as straightforward as it would seem. You've got to determine to what degree does this statement stand. What portions of this thing called salvation are impossible with man? Because you see, there are people that will preach. There are people that will teach that it is only that atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, it's only the dealing of our sin that is impossible with man. You see, most everyone understands the main thrust of Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man can boast. Most any serious preacher understands that what God is making clear in his word is that man cannot atone for his own sins. Man cannot work, he cannot strive, he can do nothing to pay the debt that he owes on to God on behalf of his sins. It is only by the grace of Jesus Christ, it was only by his death on the cross, the death of God's own son, that our sins can be dealt with. Most any preacher worth his salt, most every preacher in this town, they would stand before you today and say, brothers, sisters, you simply cannot pay the price that is owed for your sin. You cannot earn your own salvation. But I say to you this morning that this thing which is impossible, this portion of salvation which is impossible, it goes a whole lot further than just the payment for our debt. It's even the very faith by which we reach out our hand and receive this free gift. It is all of God. Apart from some supernatural working of God, you don't even have the ability to receive the free gift of salvation. And so if we look, and I I need to be clear at this, because you will hear other preachers that will stand up, and what they will tell you are things like, yes, yes, God must do a supernatural work. God must extend grace. The Bible very clearly says that it is an act of grace. God must extend grace into your life in order to enable you to reach out your hand and receive this free gift. And so they talk about this idea that from the cross of Jesus Christ, he not only deals with your sin, but he frees all of mankind up, that you're all now restored to some state much like that of Adam, where you are now free to decide for yourself, do you choose Jesus Christ or do you reject him? Do you find the gospel glorious or do you turn and walk away? 
They call this provenient grace. This is like an enabling work of God that simply sets all men free, and now the determining factor in each of your lives is will you use, will you maximize, will you utilize this grace that he has put in your life? But again, I tell you no. If all that has happened there is God has restored you to a state where it is now up to you, where it is now every man is free, completely able in this moment to choose, that the only difference between the saved and the lost was the saved are those that could muster in themselves the faith to believe then you must see that what happens then is it's all about the power of the preacher. It's all about the ability of the evangelist. And it's all about your ability to generate faith in your own life. And as the end result of this, it is you and not God that has the ultimate say in salvation. It is you and not God that is ultimately responsible for your destiny. This simply is not what Scripture tells us. Over and over and over again in Scripture, we see a very clear picture of who man is. We see a very clear picture that this is much more than just a, just a picture of a man that has made some sad choices. This is much more than a picture of a man that just hasn't attained all that God has called him to be. Romans 3, 10 through 18 paints a picture of a man that can do no good, that is not righteous, that does not seek after God, that has venom on his lips, that speaks nothing but lies. This is a broken and a wretched and a depraved man. Not as, not as depraved as we could be. Not as evil as we could be. By the grace of God, God restricts evil. You understand that if God lets you, let you loose, if he completely turns you over to all the evil that was in your heart, we couldn't sit in this room today. So there is this restricting hand of God, this common grace by which he restricts the evil that you commit in this life. And yet, every single part of who you are is affected by sin. Every single part of who you are is living in rebellion to God. Romans seven eighteen says, For I know that no good thing dwells in me that is in my flesh. Titus 1.15 tells us that our minds and our consciences are defiled. John tells us that we hate the light and we cling to the darkness. This is the picture that God paints for us of who man is. This isn't just man before the cross. This isn't just man before some common grace that God has performed in all, in all creation. This is all man everywhere at all time. Every single man resistant to God. He goes beyond that to say we're not only resistant to God. We don't only love the darkness and hate the light. That as a result of this, we're dead. This is the story of Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Man is dead, spiritually dead, and yet walking down a path. I compared it to throwing corpses in a lazy river. They continue to move, but they're going one direction. They're continuing to flee from God and go towards the prince of this world. Go towards the evil. Go towards the wickedness. Go towards the eternity of wrath. They continue to march on in this direction. They're sons of disobedience by nature. It is our very nature to be rebellious, to be hateful of God and of his word, to be distrusting of God and of his word, and continue down this path of rebellion away from him. Completely and totally dead. Unable to cry out, unable to work, unable to ask, unable to even reach out our hands and receive this good, this good gift that God has offered to us. It's impossible. Not only is it impossible for man to pay for his sins, it's impossible for us to do anything but sin. As Isaiah tells us, even our greatest, our most righteous of deeds, they're but filthy rags. Everything that we do is tainted by sin. Everything that we do comes through a mind tainted by sin, a will tainted by sin, hands tainted by sin. So that even when we're presented with the glorious offer of Jesus Christ, even when a man stands before us and pleads and says, here's a free gift of eternal salvation. Turn, repent, believe, be saved. We cannot receive it. It isn't that something outside of us restrains us. 
You need to understand this. It isn't as though we desire to repent and believe, and then someone outside of us is holding us back. The reality is that we can't even want it. Our heart is so twisted and, and so bent and so living in such rebellion against God, we can't even desire the good gift that he offers before us. The resistance that comes, it's our own evil hearts. It's our own deadness that continues to march on towards wrath. It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. We are free to go after whatever our heart desires, and your heart will always desire that which is contrary to God. That which believers see as glorious, that which those that have been brought to life see as the most treasured thing in all the world, the natural man simply cannot understand it, nor can he desire it. He will find it to be a scandal, a stumbling block, something grotesque and to be fled from. How many times have you known non-believers that later came to Christ and you asked them, what was it? Particularly grown folks. What was it in your life that made you so resistant? And they say, I don't even know. There was something in my heart which hated the words on that page. There was something in my heart which hated the gospel of Jesus Christ. I didn't know. I thought it was a fantasy. I would say to men that this was all fantasy, that this was all made-up stuff, that these were just the words of men on a page, and yet I hated that word more than I could ever possibly explain to you. This is the state of natural man. It's impossible. So affected by sin, so affected by our sin nature and the outworking of that sin that we cannot understand, we cannot receive, we cannot even submit. We cannot submit to the God or to his word. Romans 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I got like 80 more texts. I, I read texts like Psalm 14 that talks about the reality that man denies God. Proverbs 22, 15, it says that it's all folly in our heart, this thing called the gospel. Genesis 8, it says that men are only wicked, only evil in their desires. Psalm 51, saying that we lie from our mother's womb. John 8, saying that we're ensnared, that we're enslaved by sin. Romans 5, telling us that we're hopeless, lost, without hope. Jeremiah 17, telling us that our heart is exceedingly wicked. You tell me where there's room in this picture of man for him to come to Jesus Christ in faith. Not only, in not only wicked, but in love with his wickedness. Not only in darkness, but in love with his darkness. Not only unable to please and to obey God, but unable to understand or to love or to cherish or to go after God. You show me where there's room for this man to turn and trust in Jesus Christ. You told me what, show me what this man can do in himself to bring this about. He's dead. He's dead. He's Lazarus laying in a tomb, dead. So where is there room? Where is there power in the preacher to call this man to life? Where is there pretty music that can arouse in this man some sense of life? He's dead. This is the picture that Scripture paints, and you've got to see this. This is the state of man. Every single man, apart from the working of God in his life, apart from an awakening, a rising, a regeneration, a new birth, this is the state of every single man, hostile to God, resistant to his word, unable to understand, unable to turn and desire the thing which he offers. It doesn't matter how beautifully you preach. doesn't matter how earnestly you plea. Ultimately, they will reject. If man is left to himself, Apart from the working of God in his heart, if man is left to himself, absolutely every single time, every single man will reject. They will reject and they will flee from God. They will flee from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that you can do about it, and there's nothing that they can do about it in and of themselves. Listen to the words of Jeremiah 13, 23. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. I ask you, what men are accustomed to doing evil? All men. All men. And he's saying here that you that are accustomed to doing evil, it would be easier for an Ethiopian to walk around with white skin 
to change the color of his skin or for a leopard to change his spots than for you to change your own heart, than for you to change who you are, than for you to bring you to life. With man, it's impossible. And that was the tension that I tried to set for you last week. I walked home. I'll tell you that I walked away last Sunday with just a great sense of, of heaviness. I was so afraid that my own frailty and inabilities as a, as a pastor and as a, as a preacher and, and just some of my ramblings perhaps left you confused or, or not fully grasping what I was trying to express to you on that day. And so I prayed and I prayed and I prayed that you didn't walk out of here with some faulty view of the gospel as a result of, of what I said. What I sought to do last week is we spoke in very aggressive terms against the contemporary evangelism of this day. I spoke in as clear terms as I could against this, this cheap grace where we stand in front of somebody and we just recite an outline and then call them to recite a prayer and then assure them that they have eternal life. I tried to warn you against the dangers of exactly that, that kind of thing, to be on guard and to take great care because the people that follow after this, I myself have followed after this pattern of believing that if you can just get people to believe a set of facts and nod their head that surely then they are saved and they have assurance of salvation until their last day. This doesn't come from a place of evil or hatred. It, it, it's, it's not that these people are lazy. It's not that these people aren't studying God's word. It comes from a place of desire and compassion. It comes from a desperate desire to see people saved. It comes from a desperate desire to be used of God to see people come to Jesus Christ. And so I've, I've tried to warn you last week against exactly that kind of thing. Understanding that your heart is deceitful. It is wicked. It is going to lead you in ways that just don't match up. And so we've got to be able to put that on the shelf at times and come to God's word and say, what do you reveal to us? Who do you show us man to be? And what do you show this gospel to really look like? That we would do so much more than just taking Jesus and trying to tack him onto our worldly life that we would fully submit. And that was the call to you last week, that you would fully submit to Jesus Christ as your everything, knowing that there's going to be a radical transformation, that there is no part of your life which is not going to be touched by this transforming work of Jesus Christ in your life. There's nothing that is off limits. That in very practical and real ways, you're going to see the effects of following after Jesus in everything, in your money, in your relationships, in your hobbies, in your language, in your eating habits, your drinking habits, your TV habits, in all things. There's going to be an effect in your life as Jesus Christ takes hold. But I'm so afraid that some of you walked away, and what you heard me telling you was, don't think that you can do this easy thing. Don't think that you can do this easy thing which everybody can do and have eternal life. You've got to do this much harder thing that only a few people can do. I'm so worried that you walked out of here believing what I was telling you was, look, getting into the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's not so easy that you, that you can do it with no sweat. You've got to sweat really hard. You've got to work really hard. You've got to stress. You've got to strain. You've got to dig your heels in and really work in order to gain your way into the kingdom of God. Dear friends, I need you to understand, what I called you to was not a hard thing. What I called you to was an impossible thing. That's the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we stand before men and we tell them, repent and believe in the gospel. Have a new heart which hates sin and cherishes Christ. Die to yourself and give yourself wholly and completely to him. And the man standing before you says, I can't. To which you respond, exactly. Now cry out to Jesus Christ. I can't do it. I plead with you as the only one that can, save me. Save me. I'm a man in the middle of an ocean without a hope in the world, and I'm crying out, save me. That's the picture of the gospel. It's not just do some harder stuff. 
It's not just do some deeper stuff. It's give up, throw your hands up, and pray for salvation. Save me. That's the picture of the gospel. Trusting that those that call out in this way, again, you, you can't desire Jesus Christ like this unless God does the work. Unless he brings you to that point. You can say the words. You can walk the aisle. You can get a dunk in a tank. But to come to the end of yourself in this way, to truly hate your sin, to turn from everything else and cling to Jesus Christ, to cry out like this, he will not turn you away. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. When we preach the gospel in this way, when we bring men to this place, to this impossibility, show them how helpless they are, and we might as well be telling men to fly to Mars. We tell them, do it. You're free to do it. Nobody's holding you to the ground. Nobody's telling you that you can't. Get up and fly if that's what you would do, knowing that most of them can't. And yet we call them to do this thing, trusting for those that are his. He will do what you cannot. He will cause this new life. He will cause this new birth. He will raise some, not only to see and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to truly cherish it, a thing that they fled from before. He will change your heart in a way that you see it, you hear it, you know it, and you love it. So that the words of a random preacher that meant nothing to you yesterday, all of a sudden you hear behind them the words of your glorious Father. All of a sudden you have ears to hear and eyes to see. Sounds like something Jesus would say, doesn't it? As he brings you to life and all of a sudden you hear for the first time these words as life, as everything. Like a shepherd calling his sheep, you come running. You come running. Your very first act of this new spiritual birth. That's what he tells Nicodemus. That you must be born again. You can't control who's born again. You don't even know where it's coming from. It's like the wind just whipping up. But immediately you look before you and there's a man and he is alive and he has ears and he has eyes and he can see and he can cherish and he can delight. And his first gasp of life like a newborn baby is to repent and believe. The first act that comes with the, with the preaching of this word is they understand this word in that moment for the very first time is God makes them together alive with Christ. One second dead, rebellious, resistant, hateful to all things that come from God, completely unable to please him or to know him or to cherish his gospel, the next moment alive and loving it more than anything else in all the world, trusting that those he calls he will justify, those he justifies he glorifies. God doesn't start and then stop. God finishes every work that he begins. He doesn't call you into this life of salvation and go, oops, this is a harder project than I wanted. You have been called. You will be made right with God. If you have been made right with God, he will lead you into glory. This is the picture. Knowing that even this faith is a gift from God. Again, we don't muster this thing in ourselves. That God does this work to bring it about. Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. Reminding us that a call to belief, a call to faith in Jesus Christ, is a call to suffer. But ultimately, it is God who causes you to believe for the sake of Jesus Christ. For the glory of his name, he has caused you to believe that God not only pays the price for your sin, he not only brings you to a point where you can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, he imputes to you, he grants to you the ability to respond in faith. Repentance too. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffer no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Repentance, too, is a gift from God. There's a grief of the world, and it only leads to death. You see, the loss can be grieved. The loss can be sorrowful. That's why I say just being sorry for your sins is no guarantee of salvation. 
Just feeling badly for the things that you have done is no guarantee of salvation. There is a godly grief which brings you to repentance, to turn, to flee, to abandon all other. And that repentance, it leads to salvation. It's all the working of God. With man, it is not possible. And again, that is my fear. That is my fear. That we have so gotten tired of waiting on the supernatural working of God. We've gotten so tired of depending wholly and completely on him. We've just thrown this true gospel out the windows, forgetting words like the men of like words from men like Jonathan Edwards. It's Jonathan Edwards that said, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin which made it necessary. This isn't 99% of God and 1% of you. You just made the mess. You just earned the wrath. You just caused the separation. It is all the working of God. And yet because we, we grow so tired of preaching a gospel like this, we grow so tired of calling men to this impossible thing, we grow so tired of going out and preaching this gospel, forgetting that Jesus Christ himself has said that few will find this way, forgetting that it is only by the calling of God. You cannot come unless my Father calls you. Because we grow so weary of this, because we grow so weary and because our pride can't stand relying, holding completely on God to do this work of salvation, to do this work of evangelism, to do this work of calling men to ourselves, we grow so tired and so weary of this that we twist ourselves into knots. We water the whole thing down and we turn it into something that any man can do. Sure, maybe we set the bar a little bit higher than the church down the street, but the reality is we're setting bars that men can hurdle on their own. It's about the walking this way, talking this way, coming to this place. We've taken this impossible thing which God has called men to, this impossible thing that is the only way of salvation, this impossible thing that requires the supernatural working of God, and we have so completely dumbed it down. We stand before men and we tell them, fly to Mars, and they say we can't, and so we slap an astronaut helmet on their head and we call them an astronaut. And we run in little circles around them and go, look at you, look at you flying, look at you. And we sit in a group like this and we call this NASA. And we wonder why there's no affection, no change, no, no evidence in our lives. We've truly received eternal life. We wonder why we don't see the power of God's working in our lives. Because we run around making a bunch of minions in our own image. So Peter, Peter responds, verse 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and we have followed you. So Peter speaks up on behalf of the group, still probably thinking about this rich young man. And I don't know if he just misses the point And he's saying, look, Jesus, you said it was impossible, but we did it. Aren't we pretty? Or if he's saying, well, look, Jesus, clearly God has already done this impossible thing in our life. And we have abandoned all else. We didn't walk away like this rich young man. We are still here and we have abandoned everything to follow after you. I don't really know what the driver behind this statement is, but if Peter really got it, he would not be keeping score like this. If Peter really understood, he's, he's talking about trading bottle caps for bricks of gold. He wouldn't be keeping a tally. He wouldn't be looking backwards on the things that he gave up. He wouldn't be asking what's in it for him, but that's what he says. He said, Jesus, we've taken up our cross. We followed after you. We didn't walk away. This impossible thing has happened. Now what's in it? For us. Matthew tells us that he says, what then will we have? I have to struggle. I have to confess that I struggle at this point. 
I have not suffered greatly in my life. I have not suffered a tenth of what many of you in this room have suffered in your life. And yet still, there are times when I'll look backwards on acts of obedience or acts of sacrificial giving or something. And I'll say, what now do I have, Jesus? But he's so gracious, he doesn't turn you away as he should. He doesn't strike you down as he should. He responds. He responds to Peter, verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. How often have I talked to you about trading up? How often have I talked to you about trading up for once in your life and refusing to hold on to the dung of this world when the glories of heaven are right before you? And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's promising. He's making assurance. He says, you will. This is a promise. Saying, if you would give up these things, there's none of them that you will not receive back a hundredfold. That's a hundred times. So don't gloss over this. This is a straightforward word, word of Jesus Christ. He is telling you this isn't the words of a of a hopeful preacher, this isn't name it and claim it. Jesus literally says, if you give up these things for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, you'll receive them back with a 10,000% return. Saying you can keep score all you want. I am a debtor to no man. You can keep score all you want. There has never been a man that has given anything up for my sake that's able to look to me and say, now you owe me. What he's saying here is that all of these things that you have, you have given away, of course this isn't a picture of financial wealth. He's not talking about finances at this moment. He just told the rich young ruler that he's got to give everything away. And the promise for that man was treasures in heaven. He's talking about treasures right now in this age. You see this. He's talking about today. He's not pointing forward to heaven. He's talking about right now in this lifetime. And so obviously this can't be about material riches. I've watched many of you in this room give so sacrificially. It's one of the blessings of being a pastor because people give anonymously, anonymously, but sometimes they come through me to do it, and I'm just like, this is awesome. I've seen so many of you give so generously and sacrificially to the working of the kingdom, knowing that you, this, is, this is wealth in heaven, that this is not Job where he promises to restore you twofold or 100-fold what you've, what you've lost. Listen to what he's talking about here. Firstly, he's talking about new relationships talking about mothers and brothers and sisters and children. Look around you, church. Behold your reward. I think we take for granted the blessing we have sitting in this room. I think we take for granted the blessing of the family that God has built. Specifically those of us that have enjoyed such a thing for so long. I don't think we understand what God has given us people that have just been joined together by blood, not theirs, his. Equally yoked, bound together by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is those that you once held on to, those that once called you friend, those that once called you family, have abandoned you now. Or you have perhaps had to separate. As you look around and you look at the brothers and the sisters and the mother and the children, you look at those that God has brought together in a family a hundredfold, not just the people in this room, the global church. You've left this place before. You've gone to other towns. You've been on airplanes, and you sit next to somebody, and you find that they're a believer. Their spirit speaks to your spirit in some way, and you just know, I love you. You're taking the armrest, but I still love you. But there's just this thing that God does as he builds this, 
this family, and it's the thing that we most often turn and attack. It's the thing that we most often disregard. When you count your blessings, do you thank God for the brothers and sisters that he's given you? It's more than a hundredfold, I promise you that. I only got three sisters. No, two. I only got two. But he's showing us, a, there's nothing like the family that God has built. There's nothing like these brothers and sisters that God has given us and the ways in which we serve and encourage and worship and, and, and spur and discipline and all the rest. The way we, we come together and we do the things that God's called us. But he also says houses. Like he literally says houses. What does that mean? How many of your houses have I been in? How many of you have welcomed me into your home? Not just since I've been pastor in the 15 or however many, 20 years before that that I was a member of this church. How many of you have welcomed me into your house? We've opened up your home. Beyond this, I, I think back to when a man and I were young and poor, and I, I don't even know if she knows. I'd sit around wondering how we're going to make the mortgage, how we're going to pay the light bill, how we're going to keep things going, and I would continually remind myself that even if Amanda's parents or my parents or none of our family could help us whatsoever, that we had literally hundreds of people in this place that would make certain my children had a place to lay their head. Even beyond this, Brothers and sisters all around the world that would willingly open up their homes. Now, this doesn't sound all that spiritual, right? In light of all the stuff we've just talked about, you're just talking like about literal brothers and sisters, literal homes? Yeah, I think so. I think what Jesus is saying is something as simple and glorious as this. Those everyday glories that are right before you, those, every, those gifts that, that we just pass over as if they're nothing, those things which we completely take for granted, the brothers, the sisters, the homes that we are welcomed into. Yes, I think that's literally what Jesus is talking about here. He talks about lands too. Lands was the means of production. It was the way that you generated food. I think that's what he's talking about. He's talking about just all the common, everyday stuff of this world, all the stuff that you need. He's saying, Peter, you're so worried about what you gave up. Look at all that you have. Look at all that you've gained. Now, in this lifetime, now, you can let loose of all this other stuff when you come to that realization. When you understand there's nothing you're going to lose, even family, there's nothing that you're going to lose that God's not going to pay you back a hundredfold. He's saying this is what happens in this lifetime. We've experienced it. We've seen it. And sometimes we need to be reminded because we walk around with such a tight fist, our hands gripping so tightly on all these things, as if our father doesn't own all the silver and all the gold and the cattle on a thousand hills. He also promises something else, though. It's persecution. This is nothing new. This isn't a bait and switch. If you've been a member of this church, you have heard it. There is suffering. There is pain. There is persecution that is coming. I believe the noose is tightening. Dear friends, there are going... I'm going to go ahead and say it. Okay, listen. Our day is coming when there's going to be news cameras lined up on Runneberg, okay? The day is coming. We're just a small fish. I just hadn't said anything that caught their attention yet. Maybe I just did. The day is coming. Persecution is coming. And we count it joy. That God would see fit to allow us to walk through this. That we would be more like Christ. That we would join with him in his suffering. They hated him. They're going to hate us. If we truly represent him, we need to be very, very scared if the world loves us. We need to be very, very scared if those that walk in the flesh, that those that are natural man can continue walking with us and singing our praises. You need to understand that the world is going to hate you. They're going to persecute you, but there is reward in that persecution. 
That's why he promises it here. Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things falsely against you on my behalf. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Become like him. And then he talks about eternal life. And i got to really speed up. He talks about eternal life in the age to come. Of course, eternal life is a thing which begins now and continues off into eternity. But now he's looking towards heaven. And he's saying this eternal life, as sweet as it is, and dear friends, it is sweet. I wouldn't want any other life than the one that God has given me. And I don't mean because it's all easy. And I don't mean because I'm rich. And I don't mean because everybody thinks I'm I'm pretty. I mean, because life with God is the best kind of life, but as sweet as this life is, the life of eternity, seeing him face to face, worshiping him, no longer stained by sin, it doesn't hold a candle. This life can't hold a candle to what awaits us in eternity. And then, of course, those who will be first will be last. Many who will be first will be last. Those who are last will be first. He's saying many of those that are first, that are rich, that are powerful, that are rulers. He doesn't say all, by the way. You notice this? Many who are first will be last. There are some people that are first on this earth. They get to be first in heaven too. And you go, well, that's not fair. Let me assure you that when they are first in heaven, they're not going to be looking back on this going, well, that was awesome. That was icing. That doesn't even come close. He's saying those of you that were, some, some of you that were first on earth will also be first in heaven, but many of you will not. Many of you will not, but those of you that are last, the weak, the meek, the poor, the mild, the lowly, they shall be first. Dear friends, we need not worry about our station in life. We need not think that this is our station for all eternity. We need to understand that when we see Jesus Christ as he is, we're going to look back on all the trials, on all the suffering, on all the poverty, on all the illness, on all the brokenness, on all the things that we hated in this world. We will look back on all of them, and we will call them blessed. We'll say, God, you used all of that for my good. You used all of that for my glory. You're going to look backwards, and you're going to realize that eternal life started today. Eternal life doesn't wait for heaven. Eternal life began at the moment that Jesus Christ called you to himself. Eternal life began at the moment that God opened your eyes and graciously gave you the ability to respond in faith and repentance. Eternal life begins today, not when you get some other things lined out, not when your life situation changes. Not when you enter the gates of heaven at the end of this life. It begins today, and you will look back on all the suffering of this lifetime and all the loss, and you will say, I thank you, God, for all that you did. That's the call. That's the call. And when you heed this call, you're going to find such radical transformation in your life. You're going to find such a radical change to every single part of your life. There's going to be nothing which gets left untouched. So I encourage you this morning, if after all that we have said in these last two weeks, you find yourself playing church, you find yourself playing games, you find yourself like the rich young ruler, earnestly desiring eternal life, believing that you're coming to Jesus Christ and to him alone with a humble posture of of repentance and faith, and yet you see no change in your life whatsoever. If you find yourself striving in your own efforts, wholly and completely different, I'm calling you yet again to do the impossible. I'm calling you yet again to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm calling you yet again to repent and believe and be saved. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you for this people. Father, I thank you for this family, these brothers, these sisters, these mothers, these children these people that you have joined together by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and his glorious gospel. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to come together around your word. Father, I know that if left to our emotions, we would be completely and wholly lost, that our heart is a liar. We can't even understand the things that come in this life. And so we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit, your spirit which comes and ministers that word to our heart and brings us to understand that which only he can. Father, we want to be a changed people. 
We want to be a people that truly and wholly delights in you and you alone. And so, Father, as we seek to worship you now, would you drive the meditations of our heart that we wouldn't just be speakers of truth, we wouldn't just be speakers of praise, we would be people that truly and wholly worship in spirit and in truth. For I pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.